I am the lead pastor of SWEC, and it's really great to join you today. Uh, I'm looking forward to lunch. It's going to be awesome. Okay, let's get going. A high school senior, that's a year 12, named Heyman Lee, disappeared one day after school in 1999 in Baltimore country, Maryland. A month later, her body was found in a city park. She'd been strangled. Her 17-year-old ex-boyfriend, Adnan Syed, was arrested for the crime, and within a year, he was sentenced to life in prison. The case against him was largely based on the story of one witness, Adnan's friend, Jay, who testified that he helped Adnan bury Hayes' body. But Adnan had always maintained that he had nothing to do with Hayes' death. Some people believe he's telling the truth. Many others don't. Sarah Koenig sorted through thousands of documents, listened to trial testimony and police interrogations, and talked to everyone she could find who remembered what happened between Adnan Sayed and Heyman Lee. She discovered that the trial covered up a far more complicated story than the jury or the public ever got to hear. The high school scene, the shifting statements to police, the prejudices, the sketchy alibis, the scant forensic evidence, all of it leads back to the most basic questions. How can you know a person's character? How can you tell what they're capable of? In season one of Serial, she looks for answers. Now, let's get a show of hands. Who actually listened to some or part of this very important podcast? Yeah, only a couple of you. Okay, just to let you know, this 2014 podcast called Serial, it changed the face of podcasting, especially true crime podcasts. It really was that influential. But more than that, this podcast actually changed the fate of Adnan Syed. You see, after over 20 years in jail, after multiple appeals, finally the conviction was overturned just this year. He was released in September. The podcast, Serial, uncovered lots of problems with the investigation, the trials, and not the least a problem with Adnan's first lawyer. Her name was Christina Gutierrez. She represented Adnan in, her fir in his first trial, but the first trial was actually declared a mistrial because the judge himself called her a liar, and he happened to have said that in, in, within a year shot of the jury, so that made it a mistrial. And then the, the podcast it, it also, and the appeals later proved that she had provided quite ineffective counsel. She failed to even interview key witnesses, including an important alibi witness. And just as a matter of course, uh, not related to this, in 2001, she was disbarred as a lawyer. Now, because of her, you could say, an innocent 17-year-old high schooler spent over 20 years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. You see, when your life is on the line, it matters a lot, doesn't it? that you have the right, the right lawyer, that you have the right representative, that you have the right advocate, the right counselor, the right mediator. When your life is on the line, it matters. It matters for Adnan Syed. And I want to suggest to you that this is what Hebrews chapter 7 is all about. You see, our lives, actually our eternities, are on the line. And the book of Hebrews has been saying... Jesus is our mediator. He's our advocate. He's our go-between. He's our heavenly lawyer, if you like. Or the words it uses is he's our priest. Jesus is our priest. But it raises the question, how do you know that Jesus is qualified? How do you know he's the right one? Now, to most of us, it'll be like, of course he's qualified. He's the son of God. But you see, if you were a Jew in the first century... And your whole religion was built on a priesthood and a temple system, you would not necessarily have 
recognize Jesus as a legitimate priest. You would have been saying things like, well, no, Jesus can't be qualified as a priest. He's not even from the right tribe. He doesn't serve at the right temple. How in the world can you Christians claim that Jesus is a priest? And that is what Hebrews 7 argues. See, if Jesus isn't qualified, then we don't have the right priest. And if he isn't the right priest, then guess what? Our forgiveness, our relationship with God, our eternal life, all of that is in question. So you see how important this is? Let's pray. Let's get into it. Lord Jesus, even as we deal with a passage of Scripture that has a lot to do with Old Testament background, stuff that we may not see is directly relevant to us now, we know that it is because we come to the end of the chapter and assures us what you bring priest means. And we pray that we would understand and that you would speak to us and you would challenge us and you would assure us as our high priest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Okay, these are not easy verses to grasp, mainly because they deal with questions and issues that first century Jews were concerned with. But as you read it earlier, as Bill read it earlier, you might be thinking, well, I don't really get how it concerns me. So I'm going to try and make it as easy for you as possible and as memorable as possible. So the passage I'm going to deal with in three sections. Now, each section, I think, has a key verse or a couple of verses, okay? A key verse or key verses on which I think the whole argument of that section is built. So look out for those key verses. Well, my first point is a greater priest, and that's the first section. Um, Chapter 7, verse 1, you want to keep your Bibles open. He says, this Melchizedek, now that links back to the verse before in chapter 6, it says, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, and the whole reason why he's going to get into this line of argument is because the Jewish priesthood, as I said, is from another line. It's from the tribe of Levi. Only Levites could be priests in the Old Testament Bible. And then now we're saying, or the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is a priest, a high priest. And hang on, though, he's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. Now, uh, those of you who are lawyers or have studied law, you'll know that to practice law in Australia, you need to be admitted as a lawyer of the Supreme Court of your state or territory. If you hire a lawyer and they say they're admitted as a lawyer from the Supreme Court of Mozambique, you ought to be concerned, Right, Because they're not qualified to represent you in Australia. So we got to ask the question, who is Melchizedek? Who was Melchizedek? And why does he qualify Jesus as high priest? If you like, Jesus has been admitted by the Supreme Court of Melchizedek. Why is that valid when everyone else is admitted by the Supreme Court of Levi? Okay, see the, And we get to our key verse in this first section. This is the key verse. Verse 3. Without father or mother, this is talking about Melchizedek, Without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Uh, Melchizedek, by the way, is only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament. All right? Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110. Only those two places. Now, in this first section, we're going to look at his mention in Genesis 14. At least the writer of the Hebrews is going to refer back to that episode. And you see what he says there from verse 1? Have a look at your Bibles. It says, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's pretty much a summary of what happens in the first mention of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. All right, so Melchizedek appears suddenly and then disappears 
just as suddenly. And the writer of the Hebrews makes that central to his argument. He's saying, look, unlike other Old Testament heroes, when you read about Melchizedek, he kind of just appears. And he appears without any mention of his father or mother or tribe or genealogy. Right? That's quite unusual. No mention about his life or his birth or his death. So in that sense, Melchizedek is like some guy who appears and his priesthood, he's a priest, has no beginning or end. And then he says, oh, also look, if you think about his name, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Right? And also he was the king of Jerusalem. And Salem means peace, so king of righteousness, king of peace. He mentions that in verse 2. And these are all very messianic titles and labels, king, righteousness, peace. And what he's saying is this, Melchizedek, therefore, becomes the most perfect preview person for Jesus. He is the most perfect preview person for the Son of God, who is the perfect priest. Because Jesus, his priesthood has no beginning and end, Jesus He's the king of righteousness. He's the prince of peace. Now, Hebrews is not saying that Melchizedek is somehow literally the son of God. Like He's not saying Melchizedek is divine or immortal. What he's saying is this. His mysterious appearance in the Bible makes him a perfect preview person in the story of the Bible for Jesus. It's almost as if he's saying, look, Melchizedek is there twice in the Bible. You know what? The only reason why he's even there at all is to point to Jesus. Now, I don't know if you thought about the difference between a watch and a compass. Uh, with a watch, everything that it takes for the watch to operate and, and why it's worthwhile is internal, isn't it? All the mechanics are all internal, right? Whether it's digital or whatever or, or, or analog, it's all internal. A compass is different, right? What makes a compass work and what makes a compass worth, like do its job is actually what's outside of itself. It's magnetic north. That's the compass's job, to point to something outside of itself. Now, I, I want you to think about Melchizedek as a compass, not a watch. Like, his whole appearance, the whole reason why he's mentioned in those two times in the Bible is so that he can point to magnetic north, which is Jesus. That's kind of what Hebrews is saying. Now, we don't have time to go through in detail, but then verses 4 to 10 will reinforce how much greater Melchizedek is, right? Because, firstly, he mentions Abraham. The father of the Jewish nation, he gave Melchizedek a tithe, 10% offering. Right? You only give someone money if you think they're greater than you. Number two, Melchizedek is the one who blesses Abraham, not the other way around. So therefore, he's greater. But then crucially, number three, and this is the argument he's getting at, Abraham is the great-grandfather of Levi. Remember? Priests came from the tribe of Levi. Well, if Abraham gives Melchizedek 10% and Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek and Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, then it surely stands that Melchizedek is that much greater than Abraham's great-grandson. Yeah, that's kind of his argument. All right, so that's the first point. Let's keep going. Point number two, the next section, a greater priesthood. Now, the second section will hinge his argument on that other, only other Old Testament passage mentioning Melchizedek, Psalm 110. Remember? Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is actually quoted twice in this section in verse 17 and verse 20. In Psalm 110, we don't have time to look at it, and he quotes it basically anyway. God declares, God swears an unchangeable oath that the king to come, and he's obviously talking about Jesus, would be a priest forever in this better order of Melchizedek. That's what Psalm 110 is about. 
So this section, verses 11 to 22, will build on that. It will argue, well, if Jesus is from this alternate, this greater, and this chronologically earlier priesthood, because remember, right, Melchizedek came before Levi by four generations at least. Well, if Jesus is a priest from this greater order of Melchizedek, then it stands to reason, actually, that the whole old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, is superseded. There's a point in which it's just no longer relevant and valid. And that's what he's, look at verse 11. That's the point he's making. He says, verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Aaron is part of the Levitical priesthood. All right, that's what he's saying. But then remember key verse, key verse for this section is this. See it there, verses 18 and 19. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Right? He's saying some pretty stark things, and if you're a Jewish reader, and this is all you know, the Levitical priesthood, you'll be like, hang on, what do you say? The old priesthood, at that time he was writing, it was still in existence, is weak and useless. Wow, that's a pretty big claim. So why was it weak and useless? Let me give you a summary. It's weak and useless because the old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, relied on priests who themselves were sinful. We'll see that a few times in this chapter. The old priesthood is also weak and useless because it relied on priests who died and they needed replacing. The old priesthood is also weak and useless because it relied on earthly temples. And earthly temples are only a copy of the real temple in heaven. And we're actually going to see that a couple of weeks' time in Hebrews 9. The old priesthood is weak and useless because it dealt with sin by the blood of animals. And we know that animals can't really substitute for humans. We're going to see that argued later on in Hebrews 10. So that's at least four reasons why in Hebrews uh, both now and in the next few weeks, we'll actually see why the old one is so weak and useless. And the, the words that he often uh, contrasts is the words, you might have noticed, come up a couple of times before, it's imperfect versus perfect. You notice how much the perfect, imperfect words come up? So verse 11, it says, if perfection could be attained through the old priesthood. Um, or verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. Or verse 28, the oath appoints the son who has been made perfect forever. That's a real big theme in the book of Hebrews, and I just want to take a moment to explain it. Um, perfect in Hebrews doesn't necessarily mean pure or faultless, right? That's often what we think of when we think of perfect, something without flaw, pure and faultless. Now, of course, that is true of Jesus, but that's not really the point it's making in Hebrews. Perfect in Hebrews has to do with fulfilling or achieving a goal or purpose. You got that? Perfect is fulfilling or achieving a goal or purpose, and imperfect is something that doesn't fulfill or achieve a purpose. I don't know how many of you are gardeners, but one of the holy grails of good lawn mowing is getting those sharp edges on lawns. Some of you probably garden, you care about these things, right? Yeah, isn't it great when you see those beautiful edges on those lawns? It's every gardener's dream. And, and, you know, you can mow the lawn perfectly. If you don't get the right edges, I think it's, like, not quite as good. Now, how do you get those edges? You could pull out a pair of kitchen scissors that you use to cut barbecue chicken and try to edge the lawn. You could do that, 
but that is an imperfect tool. It is not the right tool. You've got to use the proper edging shears, or better yet, an electric edger or a motor edger. That is the perfect tool. Okay, that's the perfect imperfect contrast Hebrews uses. The old priesthood is imperfect because it didn't fulfill its purpose very well. It's like using kitchen scissors to edge a lawn. The new priesthood introduced by Jesus is perfect because it does what it's supposed to do, and it does it really well. Okay, I'm going to pause because at this point, some of you, maybe many of you are thinking, okay, I think I understand this passage a bit better. I think I get the Melchizedek thing. I think I get the priesthood thing. It's all well and good, but it just doesn't seem very relevant to us. Yes, I get what you're thinking. It is hard to see it's relevant, but I want to suggest to you it is actually quite relevant. Now, I, um, if you hear me preach, I don't often criticize other denominations or Christian movements. I don't think that's the right thing to do from a pulpit. Um, but I think there are times when we actually kind of say, hey, look, you know what? We can so easily revert to an old priesthood in our worship. And I'll just give you an example. On the one hand, you've got Catholics and Orthodox Christians and some Anglicans, and they still have priests. In fact, sometimes uh, when I introduce myself as a pastor, I get mistaken for being a priest, and I have to say, no, I'm not a priest. <laughs> Don't call me father. But, but these traditions have priests, Catholics, Orthodox, some Anglicans, and what they mean by priests is these are actually special people who stand between us and God. And in the case of Catholics and Orthodox, they actually offer the sacrifice of the Eucharist, of the communion. They hear your confessions they give absolution forgiveness to the confessor. That exists. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, and let's criticize our own movement, contemporary Protestant churches. Well, we may not use the term priest, but we can so elevate the pastor or the preacher or the worship leader or the healer or the revivalist or the teacher or the theologian or whatever. It's almost as if, yeah, you're not using the word priest, but it's like if I'm an ordinary Christian, I can't really get close enough to God without them. See, the problem with a lot of theology and practice from both camps is that they come from Old Testament religion. They come from an old priesthood, old worship idea. And the point of Hebrews is that's all been superseded. Yeah, Jesus has come. And because he has come, remember the key verse? A better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. You don't need any other human intermediaries to draw near to God because you've got Jesus. And that leads to the final point, the final section. Look at verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And here are key verses. That's why it's highlighted. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, Unlike the other high priest, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day by day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son 
who has been made perfect forever. Okay, this is where the whole chapter was heading. These key verses here. Here is where our stories and Jesus' story actually intersects. And it all has to do with what Jesus is doing right now as our high priest. He is interceding right now as our high priest. In 1975, a nerdy university dropout partnered with a friend to start a company. This company was called Microsoft. The man's name is, of course, Bill Gates. And along with Steve Jobs, they changed the world, basically, yeah? But you see, long after Gates became famous and enormously wealthy, he began something that's arguably even more important. He is a generous philanthropist, giver to charities, started his own charity. He's one, actually one of the most generous givers in history. He's actually pledged, and he will do this, give away almost his entire $100 billion fortune. See, unlike Steve Jobs, if you only know Bill Gates for his computer career, you don't know him at all. His most important work arguably came afterwards. It's his charity work. You see, when it comes to Jesus... Many of us stop at Jesus' death and resurrection, but we forget what he did after his resurrection, what he's doing right now. And Hebrews is one book that reminds us Jesus continued his work after his resurrection by going up into heaven, by entering God's presence where he is right now in order that he might be a high priest and intercessor. And there he will remain forever. Even after he returns and judges the world, he will remain as our high priest in the presence of God forever, which is why we've got this key verse, chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them, right? Why is this important? The next verse says, such a high priest truly meets our need. Why is this important? Why do we need him? Because we really need him to do this, don't we? Because without his priestly and intercessory work in heaven right now, we cannot continue as Christians. Because salvation isn't just a past event. Salvation is a present event. It's a future event as well. In order for us to be saved completely, we need him to always live to intercede for us. You see, many Christians don't understand this heavenly intercessory work of Jesus and how important it is. But it's not just an understanding thing. Many Christians, and this might be you today, I'm going to tease this out for you in a moment, you're struggling precisely because you haven't leaned into this very important work of Jesus. You haven't made the most of it. You haven't made it part of your life. And if you did... It would change your experience as a Christian. So I'm going to finish with three ways in which Jesus intercedes for us. Because that's just a concept, intercede. Well, what does it mean? Well, how does he do it, right? Is he actually talking? What was he doing? Is he speaking? Right? What does it mean? Okay, I'm going to give you three ways in which he intercedes for us. It all starts with A, applies, access, advocates. Firstly, Jesus intercedes for us by applying his sacrificial work for us. Right, Jesus' death for our sins is once for all. He died in our place for all of our sin, past, present, and future when he died on the cross. But you see, in order for us to enjoy the benefits of his saving death, 
He stands in our place as a high priest so that he can forever and always apply it on our behalf. His first intercessory work is he applies his sacrificial work on on the cross for us now. Now, I want you to know that this intercession, this aspect, is not for God's sake. It's not like God is the angry father saying, I just want to zap him because he sinned again. Then Jesus is like, oh, but father, I died for him. And the father's like, oh, okay, I guess I won't zap him. Right? The intercessory work is not for God's sake. It's for our sake. You see that? It's for our sake. See, when, when you see who, where Jesus is, when you understand that he's in heaven applying his sacrificial work for you, that gives you confidence, doesn't it? Because if he's there as, as your high priest, then you are truly forgiven. There are times when your own sin shocks you. You've been there? I'm sure you have if you're a Christian. The depths of your own darkness stops you in your tracks and you think, how could I do that? Sometimes guilt overwhelms you and you're thinking, am I truly forgiven? How could he forgive that sin? Because I've done that so many times and I kept saying I wouldn't and you keep coming back to it. How could he still forgive me? It's then when you need this truth, right? We're going to sing this in a moment. But the words of that wonderful hymn before the throne of God, it says, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That captures so beautifully this aspect of Jesus' intercession. I can't wait to sing it in a moment. By the way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus or it's not clear to you, this is great news. This is a really great reason to trust in Jesus. No matter what you've done, no matter how dark, how regretful, how guilt-ridden you are, someone made an end to all your sin if you will accept Him and trust in Him. And He will always be there in heaven to secure that forgiveness. So will you turn to him? Talk to the friend who brought you. Come and talk to me, Pastor Marshall. We'd love to help you do that. Okay, that's the first A, apply. Second, access. He grants us access to the very presence of God. You see, when Jesus rose again from the dead, some of us think, okay, he became a man at Christmas. At his resurrection, he became fully God again, and he shed his humanity. Well, that's not the case. All right, the Bible says that Jesus will forever be a man. A God-man, 100% God, 100% man. He didn't shed his humanity, he perfected it. And so what that means, and this is why it's good news, because right now there is a perfect human being in heaven before God who has perfect access to God's presence forever. And he represents all of his people, all humanity in heaven. Who stands at his right hand is not an angel, but a man, a human being. And for Christians, because of the Holy Spirit's work, where He is is where we are. All right? The hymn we're going to sing in a moment says, One with Himself I cannot die. We are one with Jesus. Where He is is where I am. Where He is is where you are, if you're a follower of Jesus. He grants you access to the very presence of God. Now, that's great, isn't it? Because sometimes, maybe often, you feel far away from God, don't you? For any reason, when you feel far away from God, remember where Jesus is, because that's actually where you are. Don't let your feelings lie to you. 
because your perfect representative, Jesus, gives you the access. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And finally, he advocates for us. He advocates for us. If there's any speaking that is done in heaven, all right, the first two, by the way, it's just by his mere presence. He intercedes by just being there. There is a speaking role, but it's not to say, oh, Father, please forgive him because I know you don't want to. And for my, you know, he's not doing that, okay? His very presence assures us of forgiveness. But what he is speaking is prayer. All right? I don't know um, if you've ever done this, but um, sometimes I'll meet a person who's not even a follower of Jesus, sometimes like even a Muslim, someone of other religion. And I'll say after our conversation, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Do you mind if I pray for you? And I've never gotten a no, I don't want you to pray for me. Okay? People appreciate being prayed for, even if they don't follow Jesus. Well, guess what, Christians? Guess who's praying for you? Not just some random person on the street. Jesus, the Son of God, is praying for you. See, he did that on earth. In John 17, he prayed for us. But even better, right now, and for all eternity, he continues to pray for us. Did you know that? Jesus is your advocate by praying for you. Sometimes your prayer, like my prayer, it feels pretty weak, doesn't it? In times of greatest need, sometimes you barely know what to pray. Maybe you're in that situation right now. Just, you can't even put into words the pain, the need. And in times of crisis, especially, even when you pray, God can feel so distant. Your prayers just hit the ceiling and doesn't seem to go no further. Well, remember that there is one who takes our weak prayers and he carries them to God who is on the throne. And guess what? He is in whispering distance to the Father's ear. And his prayers, they never falter. His prayers never fall on deaf ears. His prayers are always going to be answered. You've got a high priest who prays for you. What a wonderful assurance that is. I've said enough, I'm going to pray, and then we're actually going to sing together that song that I've already quoted a couple of times. And I hope when we sing it, you can really make it something special for you, because it's so true. It's such a great song. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your high priestly work. Thank you that you apply your sacrificial work for us. Thank you that you grant us access to the very presence of God. Thank you that you are advocating for us by praying for us. We may not be able to see the relevance of this right now, but there will be times, maybe even this week, where I pray that you will remind your people of these truths. Amen. Let's sing.